Good morning, everybody. It is morning here in the Pacific Northwest. This is Jack Graham along with my partner here uh, down in Portland, Oregon, John Peterson. Hey, everybody. Um, this is going to be our, <clears throat> excuse me, our fourth uh, podcast. And today uh, we have a very special guest that we teased, I think, in our uh, last podcast, but he is here live and in person from Corbett, Kentucky, my dearest friend, Mr. Bill Fortney. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, guys. Good to be with you. Uh, you know, we're going to be interviewing a number of people uh, over the course of this uh, podcast, and Bill is the first, and he should be the first. Um I don't know how many people need an introduction to Bill. I don't think too many people in the photography world do, but uh, I could just give you a little background on my uh, my uh, relationship with Bill for many, many, many years. Uh, I met Bill on one of the first Great American Photography Weekend photo workshops back in probably the late 80s. Bill ran that company as the first real workshop company in existence um, <clears throat> now there's hundreds and Bill was the first and uh, I went on a workshop and I think it was with uh, Gail and Raoul I think, it, I think that was the one and uh, we got to be good friends I went on another and another and then uh, decided that this is what I wanted to do so I was very fortunate to uh, do a little work with Bill and get to learn from people like Bill and John Shaw and the rest of the great photographers that Bill brought in as uh, star speakers for the GAPW. And then um, Bill went to work for Nikon for a while. He's going to do affiliate on this himself. But when he retired, we started doing some workshops together, and we run about five or six a year. And uh, I, I, if it wasn't for Bill, I wouldn't be here. So I'll just keep it short and sweet. Um, he's been an inspiration and uh, kind of a mentor for for darn near 30 years now. So um, what, what am I missing, William? Well, just that I'm old enough, but I am not Jack's father. Um, so... <laughs> I'm not quite old enough. I would have been about 12 years old, I guess, when he was born. But um, no, I, you, you've said uh, probably more kind things than you need to say. No, never enough. But the really cool thing about uh, you know having Bill here is that he's you know been on both sides of the fence. He's been on the uh, on the workshop side of photography and the uh, factory side. Uh, as a as a Nikon person and uh, Nikon tech rep, I guess, right in the Southwest. And, yeah, uh, Southern and, U.S. You know, um, I think what we'd like to talk about today, um, nothing specific, but you know, maybe the thing to do is talk about some uh, industry trends and uh, and where we see things going and and uh, you know what's happening in the in, in photography world. Uh, Bill and I have been very fortunate to both be uh, Fuji X photographers. So um, we may get a little Fuji centric here today. Uh, it's not any kind of an advertisement, um, but uh, we may spend a little time on, uh, spend a little time on that. So 
Um, with that, John, why don't I kick things off uh, over to you, and maybe you can uh, grab a few questions. Well, for- sure. I mean, just kind of feeding off of what Jack said, Bill, you've been around a reasonable amount of time, and you've seen the transition from film to digital and now into mirrorless, and you're currently a Fuji X photographer. Talk to us a little bit about how that transition's been for you throughout the years as the gear has progressed and how you like in shooting a mirrorless camera. You know, it's really interesting. When um, when I was a film shooter, and of course everyone was a film shooter, uh, there was a lot of us that said if this digital thing ever happened, uh, we were finished. We were going to go do something else. We just didn't think it was a great idea at all. In fact, John Shaw and I were two photographers among several who went up to visit Kodak back when Kodak existed. And they showed us the first uh, digital camera, and it was a Canon Kodak product. Uh, cost $30,000 and would barely make a reasonable-looking 5 by 7 print. And I remember John and I went to dinner after that meeting and said, man, I'm, if this is the future of photography, I'm out. <laughs> um, and then, of course, as we all know, Fuji, uh, the whole industry started. Actually, Fuji had the first digital camera. And, uh, of course, Kodak and Nikon and Canon had some projects together. But the um, when it first started, the cameras were not the quality of film. And so there was some resistance among the professional community and the serious photography community. But by the time we got to about a six megapixel camera, it became evident that this trend was actually going to happen and that film was going to go away. And, uh, of course, I told Shaw once that uh, digital photography was going to be like a freight train coming down the track. And you had three choices, stand in the middle of track and get run over. Uh, step off the track and jump on the train and ride it to wherever it was going to go or stand by the side of the track and wave goodbye to your career as it went away and you weren't on the train. And I think we all chose to get on the train and it wasn't any time at all until uh, quite honestly, if uh, someone had offered me a job for a hundred thousand a year, if I would be their film guy, I wouldn't have taken it. I, I was so in love with digital. I was a much better photographer with digital equipment and enjoyed it a lot more and um, and have never looked back. And to this day, I, I know there's a lot of people who love to piddle with film today, but I can't see it. I think uh, digital photography has, has changed the whole profession. It's changed in some good ways uh, and not in some great ways too, but um, – I'm I'm all in, and I love mirrorless. It has it's done the same thing. It's added up, added some new things that we can do with a camera that we couldn't do before, that make a big difference in the actual act of making photographs. So, I'm a I'm a big proponent of where we are today. Why would you say that you're a better digital photographer than you were a film photographer? Well, you know, it's real interesting. I heard a, I read a book years ago, a business book, and the guy gave an illustration um, that uh, how important visceral information is, information that you get immediately. And he said, imagine learning to bowl by going to a bowling alley, and they hang a sheet over the pins. You throw a ball down the court, down the lane, 
and it goes under the sheet, and you hear a crash, but they don't show you what happened until a week later. How long would it take you to learn how to bowl? And that's what happened to photography. Um, as soon as we had cameras that you could see the photograph on the back, on the LCD, as soon as you shot it, all of a sudden, people learned about photography much faster. Uh, they immediately saw their mistakes, and they made corrections right then. And it's why we have today, I think, we have the greatest crop of really technically good photographers we've probably ever had. Uh, and it's because the learning process changed. Um, and that was no less true for Jack and I and everyone who were film photographers. Uh, we started to, uh, I think, take our technique and what we could do already and improve it dramatically because we could see what we were doing. And um, it was the immediacy. Uh, the other great thing was, let's say you go to Africa and you take 150 rolls of film, which I did. And you shoot all this stuff in Africa and you don't know if you got anything until you get home and it's all processed. Um Imagine getting back and finding that you didn't really get a good picture of an elephant. Uh, What's well, going to cost you $6,000 to go back and try again? Mm -hmm. uh, with digital photography today, we go places, we shoot things, we immediately make corrections uh, for anything that's wrong, and we come back knowing what we got. And, and for a photographer that's done this, I'm celebrating my 50th year as a shooting, as a, a professional photographer. Um, it's dramatic how much better photography is when you have this immediacy the learning curve went through the roof oh yes yeah through the roof and you know um back uh i think photoshop didn't show up till about 1990 so you know we had um you know a couple of years a couple of years there where um you know, in the early 90s, um, that people started experimenting with processing and 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 uh, and really started to do some decent work. Um, I wasn't real blown away by the early digital cameras. I remember, I think, Nikon-wise, Bill, wasn't it the D200 that was the, really the first decent digital camera? Yeah, well, the D, the biggest selling Nikon camera was a D70, which actually, even though it was a little more amateur-based, it was an excellent camera, and uh, it produced wonderful images. The, the first truly professional-grade DSLR, I think, that Nikon made was the 200. It was the, the, the 100 came out, but it had a lot that needed to be improved. The 200 was a big jump and then of course went on from there and they've gone on to make a lot of great cameras um you know it's, john it's a, i don't know whether you know this or not but um bill and i were actually um using fuji uh fuji camera prior to either of us knowing we were doing that um i once had to make a confession to bill that, <clears throat> that uh, i was using this fuji camera and his answer to me was you too Oh, how kind funny. Of. Well, you know, I was going to ask kind of Bill or both you guys. You guys were both early adopters of Fuji, the X system. And uh, so what drew, what drew you guys to the X cameras? Bill, tell them about our trip to uh, Death Valley with the Olympus system. 
Yeah, well, we uh, let me answer that question, then I'll jump into the Olympus thing. Um, what happened with me was um, I had I was working for Nikon. I was their Nikon professional services tech rep for the southern U.S., and I had shoulder surgery. I had a rotator cuff, uh, cuff that went bad, and I had to have that repaired. And uh, the surgery turned out to be more difficult than they expected. Instead of a, just a few little places, they had to kind of really go in a number of places to fix this. And I had a long recovery, a couple of years of really not being able to use that, that shoulder very much. And I was still working for Nikon, and I simply couldn't carry the full-frame DSLRs that we were making. That was time, the time of about the D4 and uh, the, that era of cameras. And, of course, the big full-frame lenses that were necessary for those full-frame sensors. And I was still working for Nikon now, and it, it, I'm glad I'm not working for them now because I'd hate to admit this. But I was at uh, Photo Plus in New York. And I needed a small camera that I could just carry something really small until I got healed up. And um, I went around the show looking at other booths. Nikon had just come out with the Nikon One. You may remember that camera. And it was okay. It sold great. But I was just, it wasn't what I was looking for. I wasn't that impressed with it personally. And I walked around the show and went to the Fuji booth, and they had this little Leica-like camera called the X10. It was a little rangefinder, all metal, had a great zoom lens, had uh, old manual-looking controls, and it just appealed to me. And I played with it and talked to the people over at their booth. And I went back to the hotel at night and ordered one from B&H. Now, here I am, a Nikon rep, and I just bought a Fuji camera. And I kept it a secret. I carried it around, you know, in a bag without anybody knowing. And when I was out by myself, I'd whip that thing out and photograph. And at the amazing thing that happened was I made some of the best photographs I'd ever made with this little $699 point-and-shoot camera. And uh, and I realized, it, it not that it was a Fuji. It was a great camera, but it simplified everything. I wasn't changing lenses I had a little zoom range to work with, and it had a rangefinder type window, so I had to really be a little more careful in how I composed. Um, but it 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 slowed me down, and it but it made me a better photographer. And by the time I retired, which was about a year and a half, two years after that, I had already bought and owned a couple of uh, Fuji bodies and a handful of lenses, and was quietly personally shooting with them. Um, the interesting thing is about six of the NPS people that I worked with and other people in the company who've retired since then as well are all Fuji shooters now. And uh, it, not because I did it, but just they got to playing with them and realized what a great system it was, and and it, they got converted too. So um, now the, the thing that Jack brought up uh, several years ago, we were doing a workshop in Death Valley, or Jack was, and I was there with him helping him. And um, a friend of mine who was the head of the pro services at, at Olympus had sent us a pair of the OM1s. Uh, they, want, they wanted us to try it and let us know what they thought. I think they kind of hoped that we would convert. And we told them we'd be happy to try it. And we took them to Death Valley, and we shot a bunch of stuff. And we're very impressed with the camera, but it's a micro four-thirds sensor, 
and what we found was that for for most things it was fine, but when you shot at high so the noise was just really awful, and um, neither one of us could live with that. Especially since at that point we had Fuji cameras that we were shooting regularly at thirty two hundred, sixty four hundred, with essentially no noise at all. And so that kind of was the end of the thinking about Olympus stuff. Um, but uh, it, there's a lot of great stuff out there today. I tell students all the time, Jack's heard me tell them, if you're not getting incredible images today, it's not the camera. Um, everybody makes a camera that you can make wonderful photographs with. I, I personally prefer the Fuji system for many reasons, but but uh, certainly doesn't mean if you shoot Canon or a Nikon or uh, Sony or Panasonic, Olympus, anybody, that you can't do great work. And you can with a lock as well. You're just going to be broke. Exactly. Uh, well, you know, I, th- I think there's some credence to the, the thought of switching a camera system. And co- it has a way of reinvigorating your photography, potentially. Like when I switched from Canon to Fuji, I my excitement, my creativity, my love of photography grew. I don't know if that was just because of switching a system or it was because of the Fuji system specifically really fit my style. But creatively, I took a huge jump when I moved um, moved into the Fuji world. I think Jack and I both did too. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot of it had to do with the layout of the camera and the ergonomics. Um, you know, I didn't have to go looking through menus. Yeah, I, I looked at the Sony camera and it was forget it. It was it was just the menus were just convoluted. Um, and Fuji just made it really easy to worry about being creative. You know, I, I some of you might know um, I have a little bit of a background in music, and you know, when you play a musical instrument, you, you got to know where everything is. And you got to worry about being creative. All in photography, you better know where every button is. But Fuji makes it so easy because it's right on top, basically. And you know, two two thumbs could work the whole camera. It's just- and Jack and I went into—I mean, I went into photography about ten years before Jack did. But um, we were both shooting film cameras from Nikon in an era when they had a shutter speed knob, they had an aperture ring. They had a focusing ring on the lens. Um, they had a, a way to dial in compensation. And those were all things that we grew up doing. And when cameras started doing away with those physical controls and giving you buttons that you had to push and then, you know, turn wheels, um, we learned how to do that because it was necessary. But I don't. I was never as – I always hated when Nikon lenses – got rid of the aperture ring. I, I, I spent my whole life turning my left hand, my thumb and my middle finger back and forth, turning an aperture ring, and it just irritated me that that was gone. And we got it back in the mm-hmm. Fuji cameras. Oh, excellent. So, Bill, just changing tacks a little bit, I was reading your bio recently, and I saw the the statement that you're one of the most published nature and landscape photographers in terms of the number of copies of books. So you've been really prolific around publishing books. And um, so could you touch a little bit on that experience? And, and most specifically, I have a personal interest. You did a you did a book, an aerial photography book. Um, so you sure. tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, you know, the first book that I did was um, I was at a workshop with John Shaw, 
and David Middleton, who's a friend of ours, was with us. And we were, as we call, kicking the dirt, and we were kicking around ideas. And um, I don't remember who said it, but it, the idea got formed that we get 36 of the biggest names in nature of photography at the time and uh, have them photograph America for a year. And um, then we would take the best images from them and do a book called The Nature of America. And uh, somehow, some way, it actually happened. And um, David wrote the book. It was a beautifully written book. And uh, I was the project manager. I got all the photographers together and the sponsors and everything. And and we did this book. And uh, the uh, photographers shot over a million photographs. And they sent 5,000 to John Shaw and um, uh, let's see, that John Shaw and Wayne Lynch from Canada and David and I were the editors, and we edited those 5,000 images down to 200. And the book turned out, and uh, we had uh, Charles Kuralt wrote the foreword to the book, hmm. and it was a runaway bestseller. I think it had over 50,000 copies, which for a, a coffee table photo book is, a, you know, like one That's of the huge. biggest selling books ever. Yeah. Um, and after that, um, I have, I've always wanted to be a pilot, and um, I saw the movie Fly Away Home with my kids, and I thought, man, I would love to get an ultralight airplane. What a great view from about 500 feet in the air, because everything I'd ever shot was from five foot nine. And um, so I went out and did some research, and I found a guy up in Indiana who uh, flew ultralights, and he took me for a ride in his two-seater. And... Um, while we were in the air, I said, man, if I have to rob convenient food marts, I'm going to own one of these. And um, I came down and uh, got training, bought one from a guy in Florida that had bought one. It scared him to death, and he, he flew it once and put it in a hangar, and so I bought it from him. And my son Wesley and I did a book called America from 500 Feet, and uh, we just drove 123,000 miles around America pulling the 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 plane and a trailer and uh, flew in 90 locations coast to coast. And um, the the book came out four days before 9-11. And, of course, we thought, like everyone else, I mean, we weren't thinking about a book at a time like that. We were just glad we got to do it. But we were sure, you know, books were not going to sell when everybody was concerned about our safety. But bookstores being smart and knowing that um, we were in a very patriotic time, put books with America in the title in the front of the store, which is prime real estate to sell books. And our book went on to become the biggest selling aviation landscape book of all time on America. And um, I think we sold 53,000 copies, which once again was a big deal. And um, that kind of opened the door to doing some more books. Uh, publishers don't care who you are or what kind of reputation you have as long as they know you can sell books. And we had, I had two under my belt that had both been runaway bestsellers. And so it opened the door to doing some more books. And none of the other books ever sold anything like the first two. But, but they sold enough that I think everybody was happy and everybody made a little money on them. But uh, um, it, that's kind of how that happened. But not many photographers have two books that sell 50,000 copies each. Um, I think well, John, John Shaw still holds the record. His first uh, field guide, I think, sold a quarter of a million books, which is far and away the biggest selling uh, 
a book on photography ever. Um, That'll never be. Yeah, no, nobody will ever do that again. So, so speaking of John Shaw and, and other people, so both both of you guys have uh, had the pleasure of working with many, many photographers. You know, Galen, Joe McNally, you know, anybody and everybody in the industry. Talk a little bit about the people. Um, you know, you don't have to dish any dirt or, but any funny stories um, of some of your experiences? <laughs> I wouldn't dish dirt. Um, um, you know, I'll tell you one of the funny stories, uh, and this is a photographer that a lot of people really don't know about. Um, Larry West was kind of one of the grandfathers of nature photography, and he was the guy who got John Shaw started in photography. And early on, they were teaching partners. They would go around the country and do workshops and, and lectures. And uh, Larry was an interesting guy. He was uh, never finished high school. In fact, I don't think he, I think he dropped out of school in junior high. But he was one of the smartest guys I ever met. You could go in the woods and he could show you every plant and give you the um, a technical name. He could tell you when it bloomed and all about it. Um, he was a, this is ridiculous, but he was an expert in spore, uh, spore molds. I mean, he, but he knew everything about every bird, every animal. He was a great naturalist and he was hilarious. Um, I was shooting in the field once and he put a black nylon sack over his hand to make like a hand puppet out of it. And he pushed my head away from the camera and looked like his hand was looking through the viewfinder. And then he turned his hand towards me and said, and you call yourself a professional. He, he just, everything he did was, and he was, he had a Gary Larson sense of humor and was a great shooter. Um, uh, I, I, Larry, sadly, I don't know if he's still living, but I heard some years ago he had Alzheimer's and that he, you know, didn't know anybody. And I really, it's really very sad because he was a, he was a great guy, but a lot of these people we worked with were terrific people. Jack, you've got some good stories on Galen and people like that. Well, it's funny because the first, uh, the first, uh, <clears throat> workshop that I ever did with you, Bill, was that was tonight Galen came in with uh, 380 uh, old slide trays. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, yeah. It, it went from uh, the time he uh, was born to the day he came in there. And that was, a, that was a, I know it was stressful for you because people were all asleep and hitting their heads on tables. <laughs> yeah, we was, uh, yeah, we had a guy working for us, um, uh, that um, was we had we used to have shirts and all kinds of stuff that had the Great American Photography Weekend logos on them, and he would man the table back there. David Akubians, who I'm talking about, and uh, during about I don't know about an hour into this lecture, I heard something in the back of the room that sounded like somebody dropped a bowling ball on our uh, on our merchandise table, and I rushed back there, and David had gone to sleep and fallen forward. And it hit his head on the table and had a nosebleed, and I'm trying to get him in good shape. And once we got him, okay, he said, wake me up when he gets into the 70s. Uh, so I, but Galen was a great guy. Uh, he really was, but he, he was not a natural in front of a crowd. He always used notes. 
and uh, he read his notes. And a lot of people don't know this, but he had hypoxia from all of his time spent at high altitude climbing. And so one of the doctors told me once during one of his lectures said, you know, when he lost his way a minute ago and was just quiet for 20 seconds and then went right back where he started, where he left off, that was a, a, a symptom of people who have this brain disorder from spending a lot of time in thin air. And um, but so he was a character, to say the least. Well, we were just very for. I mean, I mean, I was I was so fortunate to you know just learn from watching how these folks went about their business. And Bill, I know what about his business, and and uh, you know it's kind of the way I pattern the way I run my workshops today is the same way uh, you know Bill used to do it back in the day, and that's why we work so well together. I think. Jack is, um, and I can say this, um, the only advantage to being 73 years old and one of the oldest guys in the business is you knew everybody and heard everything. And I'll tell you, Jack Graham, uh, not only is a dear friend, uh, but he runs one of the best workshops of anybody I've ever seen. He is the consummate professional. He has everything worked out. He knows what he's doing. He knows where he's going to go. Uh, he doesn't. I mean, none of none of this. We'll go and see if we can find something. I mean, he knew exactly where he was going every time we go out. And I, I tell you something funny. Um, working with Jack, um, he's had a great influence on me in many ways. But he has phrases, things he says, and <laughs> I've heard him over and over as so much that. I was in the floor the other night. I've got a new puppy, a five-and-a-half-month-old golden retriever, which I got because Jack had a dog named Roscoe that was a golden retriever, and I love Roscoe to death, and and sadly, he's no longer with us. But uh, but anyway, I've got this puppy, and I'm laying in the floor in the kitchen talking to him, and one of the things Jack said was, talk to him, just like you're talking to a human, and We've just got a great relationship, but I catch myself saying these things. And one one of the phrases I heard heard all the time from Jack is, "Yes, sir," and he says it just like that. He doesn't say "Yes, sir." He says "Yes, sir," and I'll Jack, I'll be doing something with Chester, and he'll do something, and I'll say "Yes, sir." You're a good boy, Chester. Yes, sir. He. When he visited us, when we first got the puppy, he and Linda came up to the house for a couple of nights. And, and uh, of course, Chester was licking him all over and loved his bald head and was licking his head. And uh, Jack just said, that's what we call getting a car wash. Well, I didn't think that much about it. To this day, if you're with Chester and you say car wash, he starts licking you all over. Oh, that's <laughs> funny. He, he learned that phrase, and he he thinks that's what you want. And the other one is um, Jack is forever saying, uh, well, that's a good thing. And I catch myself. Someone will say something. I say, well, you know, that's a good thing. Um, when somebody, when you think enough of a person that you actually start adopting, saying the things that they say, it's a great compliment to them as a person that, because I don't go around saying things that people I don't care much for that they say. Um, but it, it's just kind of funny. J- Jack's been a great friend, but he's also been a great influence on me. And he's a, a heck of a good photographer, I'll tell you. I mean, he's an exceptionally good photographer. Well, enough about me. 
let's talk about you. What do you think about me? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's another yeah, Jackism. That's one yeah. of your Oh, yeah. Oh, well, Bill. I love you to death, buddy. Hey, Bill. Yeah, we... Oh, go ahead, Jack. No, no, we just have a great time, you know, when we work together and, and, uh, and, and it's, it's all good, but you know, just going back, it, it just was such a, a privilege to, you know, not only read all the books and everything, this is pre YouTube and all that, but, you know, just seeing how, how all these guys who have made it in the business, uh, who are at the top of the food chain, you know, how do we, how they went about their business and, and, yeah. and it, it's. I'm not so sure that that goes on anymore to a certain extent, but um, you know everything changes. But you know back then that's how you figured it out. You know you, you found somebody who knew what they were doing and found out how they did it. You know and, apprenticeship, yeah. mentorship, yeah, that type of stuff yeah. doesn't happen much anymore. I don't think. You know, for the most part, now there's always exceptions. But for the most part, almost everybody that we've known in nature photography have been people who are more than happy to help you learn and to, get, you know, allow you to see what they're doing. Um, very, very few nature photographers that I know would uh, fail. It, it, let's say you saw a photograph of something very unique they shot and you ask them where they shot it. There's a few people who wouldn't tell you, but the vast majority would draw you a map and say, oh, yeah, let me tell you how you get there and what time of day you want to be there. And and I think that's why it was fun when we first started was people were, you know, we were all competing against each other, but but not, you know, there was enough business back then for everybody. So nobody was uh, failing to help other people if they needed help. And I thought that was kind of a cool thing about being in this business at that time. Somebody's phone. All right. So no more. So Bill, um, let me ask you real quick. So you've seen a lot of transition in the photography business over the years. Put on your put on your Karnak hat. Look at your crystal ball. What what do you think is going to happen in the next five to ten years? Well, I don't know. And get older. Yes. Yeah, well, that's right. I'm not going to be here to see it, for one thing. But, um, you know, I'm a little fearful, to be honest. Um, it seems that the younger generation, and this is not knocking millennials or anything like that, but you walk up to a young person and say, are you into photography? And they whip out their iPhone and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got a camera. And I understand that you can make wonderful photographs with an iPhone. I do myself. Um, but I'm, I'm fearful that the day will come that photo hobbyists, someone that owns a couple of cameras, a few lenses, a bag, a tripod, and all of that stuff, that that may be waning some. Um, I hope that I'm wrong. I hope that it turns out the younger generation picks up photography as a craft and they keep it going because I, I, want, I want to believe that there will always be people like us. Sadly... When Jack and I run workshops, it's getting to where, you know, some people jokingly say, you know, and this is all workshops, not just Jack's and mine, that it's kind of like the AARP group because we rarely have anybody, you know, any younger than 60 uh, and a lot of 70s and 80s. And I just wonder in another decade, 
even if I'm not here to see it. Um, what, you know, how many people are going to be doing it? Is there still going to be a need for workshops? Um, um, you can talk to people in the industry, and they'll tell you that uh, the number of companies that made bags and stuff is reduced. Some of the accessories that we used to see commonly are starting to go away because there's not as many people manufacturing them. Uh, you can look at the numbers. Uh, camera sales uh, across the board have been uh, in decline now for you know for a number of years. Um, Nikon seems to be having a very difficult time, um, um, and I think Canon has lost sales. There's, um, I don't know. I just I don't know where it's going to go, and I'm I'm really hoping that I'm being a little pessimistic and that that I'm wrong. But it but it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good for a future that we've all enjoyed. Yeah, I can I can kind of see that. For me personally, I kind of look at it like LP records. Remember when LPs were the only thing you could play, and then cassette tape, CDs, and now LPs are sort of getting a resurgence. And uh, you know, it may not be as broad as it used to be, photography wise. But uh, I have faith and hope that it'll there will always be people that want to practice to use your word, which is accurate. The craft of photography, not just Instagram photography. I, I agree. And I, I certainly hope that's the case because, um, well, I mean, it's given me my life, um, between my faith and my friend family and my friends. The only other guiding force in my life has been to be a photographer, to try to go out, and capture the beauty that I've seen uh, and share it with other people. And um, I, I, I would, it would be very sad for me if I thought we ever came to a place that that, that just wasn't happening. Um, I spoke to the Brentwood Camera Club down in Nashville, Tennessee, or in, actually in Brentwood, um, about a few weeks ago, and had a, a good group. And... Um, but I, I looked around the room and I thought, you know, there's there might have been 125 people, and I would say maybe 15 of them were younger than 50, and not much younger, maybe in their late 40s, early 50s. And um, I just I think to myself, I just I hope that uh, there's a resurgence because I think this is a wonderful a wonderful craft to be involved in. I just would hate to see it ever go away. Yeah, I said to say, I was at Napa, the North American National Photographers Association, a couple of weeks ago, and it's the same thing. I mean, the demographic is uh, is Bill and I. And uh, <clears throat> I even said to uh, a couple of the board members, you know, if it were me, I'd, I'd be spent sending out invitations to every college photography uh program within 200 miles and let the kids come here for free you know just to just to you know trying to change the demographics so for sure so so let me let me shout out to the audience real quick if there's anybody listening that's under 40 drop us a note at we talk photo at gmail.com yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah you know and i would encourage this is a blatant commercial but i would encourage people to seek out a live 
workshop. Jack and I do some wonderful ones. You can check out Jack's website. Um, I do a few, but not many. Um, there's a thing going on in the Smokies this fall in uh, late October, uh, early November, um, they're called the Summit, the Great Smoky Mountain Nature Photography Summit. And they're going to have a boatload of great people there. R.C. Concepcion's going to be there. Jack and I will be there. Uh, Joe McNally, Eddie Tapp, uh, and, and, and a lot of other great uh, photographers from the region, uh, Ken Jenkins and Bill Lee. Um, but it, this is how you get excited. You go somewhere where there's people that can teach you and that you can enjoy their work and you can stand and talk to them and find out how they got into it. And um, I, I just would, I would, I would love it if we showed up there and half of the 175 people that'll be there were young people. It, it would thrill me to death because I think that's what it's going to take if we're going to keep this going the way it has been going for the last hundred years. And folks, you can find that information. Um, on the internet, they finally have a, a website up, and it's called the Great Smoky Mountains Photography Summit. And if you put in 2019, their webpage will come up, and it's in uh, early November. In fact, it's right after the week after we do a workshop there. So anybody wants to do both, you can do both. But um, it's the 6th through 10th, and, and it's we've done a couple of these already. It's just a great couple of days. You'll go home uh, Pre pre inspired, I think. Yeah, sure. we it's it's like when Jack and I do twelve people and the two of us. Um, honestly, I've seen people on Sunday morning with tears in their eyes because they don't want it to be over. At Michigan last year, remember? Yeah, I mean it just uh, it and it's you know I think as good as the internet is, and I use it every day. But you don't get the same feeling of learning looking at a YouTube video as you do standing in the field, out there in nature, uh, with some good instructors and some other nice people, and uh, learning together, laughing together, enjoying the adventure. Um, I, I think it's something that uh, it's worth working hard to try to keep that kind of thing alive. Yep, no doubt. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, well, while we're doing uh, announcements, uh, Bill, I think it would be prudent to let everybody know that uh, Bill and I are also going to be doing a two-day symposium in St. George, Utah, not far from Zion National Park, and that will be in uh, in May um, of this year, and uh, uh, it's right about in the middle of May. I think it's the 17th through the 19th. Information, if you Google uh, Photo Symposium St. George, Utah, it'll come right up, and it's very expensive and a great opportunity, again, to get motivated. and, and uh, Very inexpensive. Very inexpensive and a, a great place to get motivated. And, uh, you know, love to see you guys there. We'll, we'll run podcasts for each place, too, by the way. Yeah. So just uh, one last thing, just to kind of wrap it up. So I've had the pleasure of getting to know both you guys extremely well over the years and count you both as dear friends of mine. And, and uh, Bill, as you were touching on how you start to say some Jackisms, you know, the great thing hanging out with both of you guys is, is uh, you know, from Jack, we have great Jackisms. From Bill, we have great Kentucky, Tennessee jokes. 
But there's one world-famous line that Bill Fortney is credited with regarding tripods. And to hear it in <laughs> your voice would make my day. Well, there's two kinds of tripods. Those that are easy to carry and good ones. <laughs> so, Sorry. That's kind of an, you know, we, we hear that all the time because it's, it's true. It's accurate. You know, a lot of these lightweight, easy to carry tripods, they vibrate, they move, they suck. So heavy tripods. So, unfortunately. Yes, unfortunately. So, Jack, any final thoughts from you before uh, we wrap just, it up? Uh, we could keep going on here, you know, for an hour. Uh, and maybe, you know, we'll do, we'll have Bill on again, and maybe we'll just do a, we can, we can talk about some of the stories that we can talk about. <laughs> some we can, <laughs> some we can't. Um, and maybe we'll just do a, you know, we'll tell a story day, you know, and, and, uh, and and perhaps maybe another idea, Bill, would be to get a couple of our uh, of our um, workshop attendees, like uh, like the judge and so many other people who have been multiple times with us, and get them to tell some stories. But get them on with us; that'd be kind of fun. That that would be fun. I'd love to hear their stories. Their end of it. Everybody says, you know, whenever we're out or I'm out, your bills are, bills are, you know, you they say you guys should write a book about stuff that goes on in these events. And I'll tell you what, it's, it's, uh, there are some great times. I'm, wor I'm working on a book that is really coming slow, but, um, it's called the life and times of the pilgrim. Um, on my blog, I don't identify myself per se, but I sign everything. The pilgrim, a pilgrim is a person that's on a pilgrimage and going through a foreign land. And I uh, kind of feel like that sometimes, but, um, there's a lot of stories, and I'd love to get them down before it's all over. I'd love to be the first one. I'll write the damn forward to that book. Okay, I'll take you up on it. That will be awesome. <laughs> so, Bill, we can find your blog where? Uh, it's just simply BillFortney.com. Excellent. So with that, I'll remind everybody, if you want to subscribe to this, we're up on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it. Just click subscribe and get every upcoming episode of the podcast. And next week or next episode, we have another wonderful interview with somebody from the industry. Any final words, Jack? No. And uh, one other thing, by, about within the next week, we'll... Uh, we have we're going to succumb to Twitter. Uh, I'm told that uh, people like to communicate with us at Twitter. We'll let you all know uh, about that um, when that comes to fruition. Um, and it's all good, you know. And like I say, when we do these events, Bill, we'll do a podcast from there, and we'll get uh, maybe some of the folks that are with us to come in and say hello. I think that's about it, uh, John. Are we still, uh, I guess we're still here, yeah, right? Yeah, we're still going. So with that, Bill, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Great hearing your voice again. Well, thank you for having me, and I uh, love you both, and I look forward to some future adventures. And you can count on that. Okay, folks, we'll talk to you later. All righty, bye-bye.